0: to the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. David Perlmutter. David is the best-selling author of five New York Times best-selling books, as well as being a board-certified neurologist. David was the recipient of the Humanitarian of the Year Award, is one of the most sought-after minds in the field of health and nutrition, has lectured at universities like Harvard, Columbia, and New York. And on top of this, he has been interviewed by Oprah. He is a big, big deal. In today's episode, you will learn all about how modern life is destroying your brain. From the foods that we eat, to the media we consume, to the 24-7 hyper-reality of social media, you would think that all of this hyper-connectivity and instant gratification would make us happier. But it's done the opposite. As a world, we are more lonely, anxious, and disconnected than ever before. In today's episode, David and I discuss some of his research into how we can detox our minds for clearer thinking, deeper relationships, and lasting happiness. And just before we kick this episode off, as a reminder, our newsletter, Healthy, Wealthy and Wise, which goes out once per week, is being greatly received. If you're interested in some book recommendations, articles, ideas, and quotes, then please, please, please hit the link below. We put tremendous care into writing it, and we really think that you will enjoy it. So, without any further ado, please enjoy this episode with the hugely intelligent David Perlmutter, MD. David It is such a pleasure connecting with you. I finished Brainwash a few months back on Audible. I just picked up the hard copy. I'm so excited to discuss it with you today. Welcome to the show.
1: Great. Delighted to spend time with you today, Joseph.
0: Amazing. So in this book, Brainwash, one of the things which I found so fascinating about it was at the start of the book, you really paint this picture that, you know, look, the cards are really stacked against us in modern life. So I wonder, could we talk about, you know, what are these sort of modern traps that are up against us?
1: Sure, and you know, I think the book was written sort of in the problem-solution kind of uh, mentality. Here's what the problem is and here's the solution. And we see that's a good formula. Uh, Here's the problem, you're overweight, here's the solution, here's some special diet plan, right? And in this case, I think that, um, in fact, I've never answered this question exactly like I'm going to answer it for you right now. But what it really represents, I think, is uh, in a way uh, focusing in on the manifesto of the so-called paleo movement. And when you get down to what that's all about, it's that our genome, our DNA, is not receiving the signals that it's expecting that uh, it has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to expect. Um, the paleo movement really focuses on nutrition, saying that you know all these new foods that we're uh, consuming are causing detrimental gene expression, our genome isn't expecting that. But in a very real sense, uh, all aspects of our physiology are being impacted by our modern world that we have not evolved to adapt to all of the things that are going on around us. And beyond that, that it's not just passive, it's actually very active in terms of how our brains are being uh, manipulated and ultimately sabotaged. Now, I am not a conspiracy theorist, I can promise you that doesn't work for me. But I think it's very clear uh, that our modern world is not the type of world uh, that we had experienced 100 years ago, 50 years ago even, and that some of the programs that have been embedded into our brains that have proven very positive for us in terms of a survival relationship are now being hacked, are now being manipulated. Let me give you a couple of examples. Please. We as humans uh, are social beings, uh, being social animals as it were, has really allowed us to not only survive, but to thrive. Division of labor, interacting with others, allows people to specialize in certain things, allows people to look out for each other. And it's how we evolved to live basically in community. These days, that sense of wanting to belong is being aggressively manipulated by this thing we call social media where we can by virtue of a click uh choose to belong to a certain crowd that has a unique perspective i'm not saying it's right or it's wrong but the problem is it offers you a unique perspective that first of all caters to your underlying perspective number one number two tends to lock you in to that perspective and that tends to distance you from the opportunity if you will uh, to experience the perspective of other people, of under, other individuals that may be perspectives, for example, that are not places you might go, places that you might find uncomfortable. And that is unlike the human experience. We've always lived in what's called the agora, the, the marketplace, where ideas would be shared and new ideas would be formulated based upon looking at the perspectives of other people. So we know that that's one of the important uh, downside ways that our uh, consciousness and awareness and certainly our attention has been manipulated. And you know, beyond that, we know that our attention, where we spend our time in terms of our digital experiences is very valuable for others. It's very valuable in terms of uh, marketing things, uh, products and services that we may or may not need but where we park our eyeballs has great fa- value to others, and how our attention is manipulated by others may not necessarily be in our interest. So, uh, you know, that is a profound a detriment, I believe, for us. Uh, it becomes very addictive. Uh, we know that here in America, Uh, the average adult spends more than six hours a day in front of one screen or another, be it their tablet, their smartphone, their television, uh, what have you, and not only does that cater to what we've just talked about, but you know it's been said, uh, Joseph, that when you're doing one thing you're not doing something else. And you're not doing the things that we talk about later in the book that you and I will talk about later uh, in our time together that are really important for our health both mental and physical health, like eating right, like preparing meals, like exercising, like interacting with other people, getting out in nature, sleeping appropriately, and even meditation. All of these things tend to nurture better health, a better brain, better mental health, and tend to rewire the brain, basically wash the brain, hence the title of the book.
0: Mm -hmm. So fascinating, and I suppose you took one in the book that six hours a day I mean, over a lifetime, I think, do you say that that adds up to, is it 22 years of life? Yeah, lost?
1: it's, uh, it, you know, it's, um, it's really quite uh, incredible to consider that, you know, some people, maybe 5% of the population, 3 to 5%, depending on the definition, actually qualify as having what is called internet addiction. Internet addiction is associated with as much as a fourfold increased risk for suicide And we're talking about a lot of people. Uh, We're talking about uh, um, a quarter billion people, which is five times the population of Great Britain. So it's a lot of people uh, that are rewiring their brains based upon the time they are spending mindlessly uh, on uh, their digital platforms. Now, I am not going to say that all digital experiences are bad. We wrote that book that you have in your hand based upon our unlimited access to information, but it's the mindlessness. And uh, you know, we talk about in the book, um, partitioning off uh, your time uh, in, in terms of what you dedicate to accomplishing a task that you want to um, you accomplish when you go online. So we created an, an acronym called the test of time that you can be using while you're online T is time, how much time do you dedicate to exploring what you want to explore? I, is it I intentional? What is your intent, what is your goal? M, is it mindful? Is your online experience mindful? Are you remaining with the program, keeping focused uh, in terms of what it is you wanted to accomplish? Because we know that there are incredible efforts while you're online to pull you away and lead you down a rabbit hole And, you know, next thing you know, for your half an hour of wanting to explore something, three, four hours have gone by. And finally, the E in time, T-I-M-E, is enriching. Uh, Was your experience positive, net positive? Or do you feel worse having read about the latest conspiracy theories about this or that and how aggressive people are being and how, uh, you know, how terrible things are? Is it net positive? And I think we should strive for when we utilize uh, the wonderful, vast resources of the Internet, that these should be positive experiences that are good for us, as opposed to uh, leaving us fearful and leaving us uh, in an us-versus-them mentality, tribalism, where you know the other people are bad and we're right, they're wrong, and that doesn't move the ball down the field
0: there's so many points i want to pick up there i mean just as you mentioned the us versus them i want to get into that and our amygdala and overdrive i want to get into neuroplasticity adaptive and maladaptive but i want to dig into your acronym first and the i intentionality because i suppose you make a great point in the book where as you say look technology it's a great servant but it's a terrible master and just on this sense of intentionality, would just one tip straight away be sort of saying, okay, if you're gonna watch an episode of Netflix, before you end up getting into the loopholes at the end and into that dopamine-driven <laughs> experience of just setting a time for how long beforehand, is that an example of intentional uh, social media consumption?
1: Write it down, mm. that's a key. I mean, it seems silly, but actually take a pen or pencil and something called a piece of paper, who knew? And, and if, you know, these days, write it down. What am I going to do? I'm going to explore, uh, I'm going to explore the Renaissance. Uh, I'm going to learn, uh, go online and learn how to play Rosanna by Toto, which is something I did yesterday. Uh, you know, and that was my intent. And there were pop-up ads to learn other songs and to take me who knows where and just don't let it happen, have your intention, and when you've got what you need, then you turn it off, and go outside for a walk, or do something that is good for you, as opposed to, you know, and it's very difficult, I know this is gonna be an evergreen uh, interview, but right now, as we do this interview, it's during a time that people will not forget, it's during a time of kind of the peak of this COVID-19 experience, and there is, uh, you know, for many people, there's a lot of, time to fill in terms of uh, you know if they're working from home and or not working or whatever and there are things that we can be doing with time Uh, it's the most valuable resource we have you know at if you ask somebody at the end of of their lives what what do they value most and i can assure you it's not the number of likes they had on their instagram posts it's uh, the amount of time that they got to spend with the people they love So time is exceedingly valuable, and I think that during uh, this experience that we are currently having, it can absolutely uh, be less valued, and uh, it, you know, it only, I mean, I guess physicists can can argue this point, but in real life, it seems to move in one direction, uh, Albert Einstein um, uh, notwithstanding. But but that said, uh, what a precious commodity that we should not squander in terms of because we're going through something right now that is very challenging.
0: Yeah, and I wanna link what you just said but there into a conversation which I had with uh, Professor Cindy Mest, and I spoke to her yesterday from the University of Austin. And this wasn't something specifically which you mentioned in the book, but it's absolutely linked in terms of the um, in terms of the instant gratification. And she was telling me about uh, pornography and she was talking about there is as a super stimuli. So as you were talking about the human genome and all these things which are, you know, which are sort of stacked against us, she told me that the number of users which has taken Amazon around 30 years to generate, it took one porn site less than 200 days to amass the same number of users. So we've got all these super stimuli, which you say, you know, I mean, the th- you know, you've even got nutritionists which find bliss points, so, you know, which are, you know, hacking the sort of evolutionary system. So I wonder, could we go into this sort of disconnection syndrome?
1: Sure. Before we get there, though, I mean, you bring up a very good point as it relates to pornography. Uh, it, it, it gets back to the hacking into our primal desires like I mentioned, our primal desire on the outside for social connection. That's what, why social media is so popular. Let me give you another hack. We as humans uh, love sweet. We love sweet things. Why? Because it was a powerful a survival mechanism. Our population was screened out for those who uh, chose to eat sweet in the day because sweet meant ripe. It was a way of stimulating uh, insulin so that we would make more body fat uh, and therefore we would survive times of caloric scarcity. So those people who developed the so-called sweet tooth, uh, you know, it was in those days the survival of the fattest, not necessarily survival of the fittest, that the ability to increase body fat was powerfully uh, survival focused and Now, of course, that's being uh, aggressively hacked into, manipulated uh, by people who want our attention in terms of what we eat, what we buy, what we drink. And uh, similarly, we have a deep drive for reproduction, and that's the appeal of pornography, because it appeals appeals to that deep, hardwired drive that we have. And uh, it's being hugely monetized. It's not just pornography for pornography's sake, it's pornography because of the pop-up ads and the clickbait. Uh, That's how it's being manipulated. It's not that they're giving you something that you want because that's what they do. They're doing it because it's good for them. Uh, I say them in the broad sense. These are the people who are manipulating our food, manipulating our online experience, manipulating our desire for social connection. These are hacks that get into our deepest level of behavioral uh, gene expression that has been refined over hundreds of thousands of years, having served us wonderfully. Uh, And now they're entry points for people who, uh, if we don't take control, will gladly take control over our online experiences and our choices. So we look at our decision making as a balance between, there are many areas of the brain that are involved, but generally a balance between one area called the amygdala, you mentioned it a moment ago, a primitive area that's really all about the now and about what I want right this minute, versus a more sophisticated, take a step back, a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex Um, that allows you to look at various nuances of your decision-making, allows you to bring a lot of data in to make a good decision, and perhaps most importantly, allows you to consider the impact of that decision in terms of how it will play out in the future. So uh, in these days, uh, it's very interesting because we're seeing a lot of decisions being made uh, based upon what I want to do right now, darn it, uh, as opposed to what's best for me and others in the longer term. Uh, you know, I, I want to go back to stores and, and go out to dinner and, and the heck with it with the social distancing stuff. I'm done with all this stuff. I want to reconnect with how life used to be. That's what I want. I want it now. That's the amygdala speaking versus you know, it looks like the best thing we've got going for us right now is to maintain our distance from other people, wash our hands and all of the things that we know about. And people are fed up with that. They want what they want and they want it now. So that's an amygdala based response as opposed to letting the adult come back in the room and really supervise the child uh, in terms of his or her decision making. So It has to do with uh, the foods that we choose to eat. I want that sugar, I like that potato chips and whatever it is, versus maybe I'll fast, but maybe I'll just have vegetables for uh, a meal or uh, whatever the good nutritious choices are that people think about. Uh, It has to do with staying up too late at night, not getting enough restorative sleep, spending too much time on the internet, All of those types of things, not exercising, et cetera, that we know are not good for us. People know that, but the question is they can't get out of their own way in terms of making decisions. Now, this gets back to something, Joseph, that you mentioned when we started uh, our time together, and that is the word called neuroplasticity. Hmm. Neuroplasticity basically, uh, as originally derived or or, uh, described by Dr. Donald Hebb, Uh, in a very uh, eloquent way, but we simplified today saying that neurons that fire together, wire together. Meaning that the more you do something and choose to do something, the more those brain pathways will start to become connected and ultimately may in fact become indelible. So it's how we learn to swing a tennis racket, play a musical instrument, or learn a language. We do it over time and time again. The more we give in to acting from our amygdala, our impulsive brain center, that only thinks about what I want right now and a story, the less we are able to connect to the other more thoughtful parts of the brain as mentioned like the prefrontal cortex. When uh, we choose to bring the prefrontal cortex online, to let, the adult back into the room, we will over time strengthen our connection and basically reconnect to that prefrontal cortex. When we're not connected to the prefrontal cortex, that is what you had mentioned, disconnection syndrome. We're disconnected. We're living amygdala to amygdala from impulsive decision to impulsive decision. I want what I want. I'm going to buy what I think I want, even though I don't need it. That's my desire, eat what I want, not exercise, no meditation, staying up too late. And what does that do? It fosters further bad decision making. It lights up the amygdala. Just one night, for example, of non-restorative sleep leads to a 60% increased activity the next morning from the amygdala, the impulsive decision maker. If you've ever had to or chose to be up all night, I mean, I certainly have done that so many times uh, in residency training, and even at you know with the, being up all night at the hospital with a sick patient, you name it. Decision making the next day is not necessarily great. Um, that uh, you know, even as it relates to the foods we choose to eat, uh, people who chronically don't get enough restorative sleep eat at an average of 380 more calories a day, which means a pound of body fat each week. So you can see that that tends to accumulate with time. The more body fat you have, the less restorative sleep you will have, the more sleep issues you'll have. Sleep, uh, obstructive apnea, all kinds of things happen the heavier you get, that creates even worse decision-making the next day, continuing to eat the bad foods, not getting the exercise, spending more and more time in front of the screen, and it becomes a very vicious cycle. So using the platform that we've discussed in Brainwash, now we are working with a team of uh, doctors, physicians, to incorporate into their learning program uh, the utilization of these principles so that they can be more successful in terms of outcomes with patients. You know we as doctors do everything we can to learn as much as we can and then we do our very best to communicate that information to our patients but what happens most commonly where the system breaks down is not that we didn't learn enough not that we didn't do our best to transmit the information but it's the execution it's the acting on the information on the part of the patient is where the ball gets dropped. And we've never focused on that. We've never focused on what is their decision-making like? Why are they making the wrong decisions? We point fingers at those patients. Why didn't you stay on the diet? Why are you not exercising? I told you to do this, and I'm the doctor. And, you know, it's pointing a finger. It's blaming. That patient goes home, looks at himself or herself in the mirror, and says, damn it, why... That doctor's right, I am a failure, why can't I do these things? And what we describe in Brainwash is, it's really not their fault when you think about it, that you know, the world is conspiring to keep us away from making good decisions, to lock us into the amygdala and disconnect us uh, from the better decision making. So what we're working uh, with uh, these doctors on is Number one, helping reconnect that disconnected brain, helping reconnect patients to first the ability to make better decisions. So the first time you see a patient who is significantly overweight and maybe diabetic, high blood pressure, you know, all the chronic degenerative conditions that in the first visit, you're not talking about the diet and the exercise, which is surprising. Because you know darn well it's likely not going to happen. 60 to 80% of the information you give to patients is not acted upon. What we're training physicians to do is first time around, let's create a program to bring the decision maker back online. Let's get reconnected to the prefrontal cortex so that uh, what we might do with uh, that patient for the first week is look. We're not going to change your diet. We're not going to say you need to walk around the block three times. Forget it for now. We'll get there. And diet is fundamentally important. But oddly enough, what we're going to focus on for the next week or two or three is, oh, let's talk about your sleep. And what we're going to do is work on your sleep hygiene. We're going to say no caffeine after 2 p.m. Uh, blue light needs to be avoided after dinner, computer screens, phones, etc. cetera. If you have to do something on the computer, a conference, or whatever, you'll wear amber, uh, blue blocking uh, glasses, um, going to, uh, you know, just work with your lifestyle so that you get a better night's sleep. Why? Because that's a fast track way to get to better decision making. That way, when that patient comes back after several weeks, he or she is now prime. Uh, in terms of now following through with the dietary ec- and exercise and other recommendations that we might make. So really trying to target the fact that patients are not making good decisions and really trying to offload the self-blame where they go home and say, I'm a, I'm a terrible person. I, I know all, I know what to do and I cannot do it. And I think it's so important that we, we take patients to a place of getting rid of that self-blame and they realize... That, as we said earlier, the deck is absolutely stacked against them.
0: I love that we are touching on this idea that, you you know, it's exactly what you talk about in the book where, you know, you say, look, regardless of your habits, by just by sort of getting that wheel spinning, right, by just by good decisions, will be get more better decisions. And it keeps the ball rolling. And right, I'd a, to, a
1: vicious, a feed-forward cycle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, one of the things in the book which you talk about is just on this idea of sleep. I mean, if anyone wants to know, just about the potential negative aspects. I mean, you sort of took, you detail in this story that you were in residency working it perhaps thirty-hour shifts, and you started suffering these terrible health conditions from that. I'm oh,
1: I, it was a it was a rough year. I mean, we <laughs> would. Uh, we would go home around eight o'clock at night, and then we would start the next morning at around six thirty or seven. We work all day. We would work all night, nonstop, and we would go home then the following evening around uh, eight o'clock at night. And uh, it was it was really challenging. I mean, I recall one time uh, having to retract. Uh, Two lobes of the brain, using holding retractors, so that my attending physician uh, could take out a small area of the brain. In a, it was a patient actually with epilepsy, and I was doing this at the end of a 36-hour shift, and I I was hallucinating. I was looking down at this person's brain. I I, I it, and I you know I'm holding their brain in my hands, so it was very challenging. But you're right. I mean, what did that do to my immune system? That year I had an ulcer uh, dysentery chicken pox and mumps uh, and it was it was challenging and I talk about it in the book I talk about uh, you know mumps in an adult male uh, attacks you in an unexpected place we'll leave it at that yeah. and uh, it was uh, it was scary I mean it, it could have made me sterile for that matter uh, didn't but Uh, Anyway, so these are kind of diseases of opportunity based upon a weakened immune system. And I think that um, everything that we're hearing today and we're thinking about is about our immune systems, isn't it? Uh, A robust active immune system will help us um, resist being infected with viruses, but should we become infected, a balanced immune system won't necessarily create this huge abundance of these chemicals called cytokines that can be lethal. So we really need a healthy balanced immune system. And one of the most impo- people say what is the best supplement that I can take for my immune system and I say, "Oh yeah, unfortunately it doesn't come in a pill. It's called sleep. Get a good night's sleep, restorative sleep. That would be the most important thing. You know, people are talking about all kinds of supplements, whether it's andrographis, vitamin D, zinc, vitamin C, uh, Sambucus, you name it, good ideas. I mean, I I actually take all of those, uh, but nothing compares to a good night's sleep in terms of catering to your immune system. And I will say that, you know, a balanced immune system uh, goes a lot further than just helping you deal with uh, an infectious agent, that we now recognize that this concept of what is called immunosenescence or the aging of our immune systems is front and center as it relates to things like chronic degenerative conditions obesity diabetes high blood pressure coronary artery disease these are all fundamentally being played out by imbalances in the immune system because it's becoming uh, less responsive becoming more senescent or more aged And how intriguing it is that those four things that I just listed are powerfully related to bad outcome as it relates to having a viral infection uh, with COVID-19.
0: Yeah. So for sleep, I mean, I've had uh, we've had Professor David Sinclair on the show talk about the importance of we've had Dr. William Lee, uh, the president, I believe, the Angiogenesis Foundation. You've just mentioned it. As far as the sleep tips goes for bed, sleep for a sort of sleep, no caffeine after 2 p.m. Uh, you mentioned trying to avoid as much blue light after a certain time. What other tips would you have for a great restorative night's sleep?
1: I think uh, the timing of your meals is actually pretty darn important. I would opt for a bigger meal earlier in the day, going to bed, uh, getting in bed, and going, trying to go to sleep with a full belly uh, is... Uh, not going to pave the way for a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. So uh, what people like Dr. Uh, Sachin Panda talk about is a yeah, three-hour interval between your last meal and then the time that you go to bed. I think exercise is really helpful. Uh, aggressive exercise to tire, basically tire you out is a good thing. Now, the timing of that exercise, I think, uh, depends on the comfort level of that individual. Some people like to exercise pretty near their bedtime, though not a lot. Uh, I, I exercise in the morning, I find that works for me. I'm, I feel energized during the day and tired at night. Um, I think these things are really important. I like the room to be a one or two degrees uh, cooler than perhaps you are used to. Uh, I, the room should be dark, the room should be quiet. If you have somebody that you live sleep with who snores or moves around a lot, then make uh, adjustments. Uh, I don't know the name of this pillow <laughs> that somebody gave me at a conference, but it's this amazing pillow, something about a crown, I think it is. But anyhow, it is it my wife puts it over her ears that she can't hear a thing because I will <laughs> snore uh, on occasion. So um, I think these are all valuable uh, tips, but I would say it's not just the quantity of sleep that really is important, but also the quality, and you won't know, you really won't know the quality of your sleep unless you get some kind of metric. Now you can go to a sleep lab and have a formal polysomnogram, uh, but it's a little bit wonky to be in a sleep lab and then try to have a normal night's sleep. Yeah. So I use an, what's called an Aura ring, O-U-R-A, and I wake up in the morning and download that uh, data into my uh, smartphone, and I get the length of time I was asleep, how long it took me to fall asleep, Plus, the amount of time I spend in each of the various stages of sleep that is very important, particularly REM sleep and deep sleep. Uh, We know that deep sleep is actually really important for um, how the brain is able to uh, basically clean itself up. Uh, The glymphatic system is a recently discovered uh, system in the brain that is uh, involved with basically clearing the brain of its debris. And that has a role to play in terms of the activity in the brain of certain cells called microglial cells, which takes us right back to our discussion of immunity. So the microglial cells are the brain's immune cells, if you will, and they're involved in how the brain responds immunologically to challenges and also how the brain regulates the level of inflammation within it. We know, for example, that Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are inflammatory, chronic inflammatory diseases of the brain that may well have uh, a significant input from the function of these immune cells called the microglia, making our sleep even all the more important. Uh, We know that even one night of non-restorative sleep is associated with a significant increase, when measured in the spinal fluid, of amyloid protein, which happens to be the protein associated with Alzheimer's disease. So um, there's a lot going on with sleep, so underrated in our society, and, and even more so in, for example, Japan, uh, that you know we need to recognize that to be more productive, no, it doesn't mean staying up late and burning midnight oil, getting up before everybody else and compromising your sleep because you want to get ahead. If you want your brain to work at its optimal best, get a good seven or up to eight hours of restorative sleep. I mean, here's an activity that we will spend basically a third of our lives doing, a third of our 24-hour period. We don't spend a third of our live or a day Uh, exercising or eating, at least most people don't, maybe some do, but think about it. Uh, And it's not something unique to humans, you know, all animals sleep. And we're just, uh, you know, Matthew Walker wrote a book called Why We Sleep, brilliant. And, uh, And we're just beginning to realize how valuable that really is, why we talked about it in Brainwash, because then you are set up the very next day to make better decisions. Than to incorporate the rest of the brainwash plan.
0: Yeah, I I want to touch on inflammation and uh, nature, but before we get there, you mentioned uh, the aura ring. I know a lot of people listening to this, myself included, we have aura rings. What would be some some baseline markers, which you say that we should aim for in regards to sleep?
1: Well, I think that uh, you know most people although there are a couple of uh, very rare (coughs) genetic variants where people uh, actually tolerate much less sleep. But by and large, I think seven hours would be the minimum in terms of the total length of time that you are asleep. I think the things that that I would look for uh, the next day if you use an O-ring in terms of what your your readout should uh, show, you know, not just the length of sleep, but the quality of sleep, how much time you're spending in REM sleep and in deep sleep. But there's a lot of other information that I think is really valuable. Uh, for example, uh, it will tell you uh, your heart rate and heart rate variability. And these are, are really important parameters that have to do with uh, your ability to uh, be responsive to stress, to adapt to stressful uh, experiences. Uh, and you might discover... Uh, for example, that there uh, there is a suggestion that your heart rhythm might not be uh, totally normal th- during the course of the evening. And you may not have expected that. And that's one of the beauties of wearable devices these days. This is inco- uncovering these silent heart rhythm uh, abnormalities. So I think that's uh, very important. Um, so these are you know this is information we never had, and to be able to wake up in the morning and know uh, how you slept, allows you to make modifications uh, because there have been early on times uh, when I first had my aura Ring that I would sleep for eight hours, but yet my time in deep sleep was not where I wanted to be. And I had to make various adjustments to make that happen. And it it was uh, uh, perhaps most importantly, moving my, um, my time of eating to an even earlier event. And that had a significant effect And I would uh, work uh, at night on the computer at times. Um, The problem with the blue light is of course it inhibits your body's melatonin production, which can have an effect on sleep. Everybody really talks about melatonin uh, in terms of sleep onset, but it can actually compromise your ability to get into deep sleep as well. And in addition, what we should understand about melatonin is it plays a really important role in immunity as well. Beyond sleep. So, things that we do that compromise melatonin should be looked at with a broader view, you know, well beyond sleep to think about immunity. And again, uh, today immunity is on everyone's minds.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. And I love the accountability. I want to discuss with you nature because this seemed to be a really prevalent uh, topic throughout the book. I mean, you even mentioned this study, I believe, in which you said that. Patients that had a window view at a hospital healed quicker than patients that didn't, which just blew my mind. So I wonder if you could just talk about the importance of that and, you know, and I guess sort of why is so important?
1: Well, it really gets back to uh, our time t- when we started today. And that is that the biggest disconnection that we are experiencing uh, is a disconnection of our genome from the environment that it evolved uh, to respond to, the foods we eat, uh, our social interactions. And certainly, you know, we lived in a natural environment for 99.999% of our time on this planet. And uh, now we are divorced from the input of Mother Nature uh, and the effects that that has on our gene expression. Going out for a walk in nature changes the expression of your life code, of your DNA. That's a profound uh, wake-up call, isn't it? I mean, to think that a choice that you made will change the expression of your genome, the legacy that you carry from every human who came before you, not just your mom and dad, but where'd they get it from, right? So it's a very empowering notion, this notion of epigenetics that we can be the architects of our gene expression through our choices, whether they're the amount of sleep that we get or not, our exposure to nature, uh, and certainly the foods that we choose to eat and foods that we choose to avoid. Uh, Nature, like sleep, has been powerfully underrated in terms of an influence uh, on gene expression, uh, and well beyond that. so that we know, uh, you, you talked about a study that was done on patients who had had a, an appendectomy, had their appendix removed, and the time uh, their, after their, their recovery period, whether they had a view of a wall out the window of the next building or had a view of, uh, of natural scenery, had a huge impact on their recovery and the amount of pain medication that they needed, amount of time they were in the hospital, the amount of complaints that they voiced to the nursing staff. So that was an early study, but um, you know, pretty pretty profound. That you know, when we're looking at ways of of helping patients do well after an operation or recovering from an illness, who knew that just a window view is so influential? And it turns out not to be just a, a window view. It can be a painting. It can be a plant in the room. Uh, and that's a take home message for your viewers. That is. Look, I mean, getting out of nature is a great thing. We all need to do more of it, but not everybody right now can do that uh, by virtue of where they live and certain restrictions, et cetera. But just a picture in your living room or a, a potted plant in your kitchen of an, uh, or an herb garden that you have by the sink uh, has a powerful effect, not only in terms of your gene expression, but also in terms of your stress level uh, we know that even minimal exposure to nature dramatically lowers cortisol, a hormone related to stress. Uh, and higher levels of that uh, cortisol, the stress hormone, guess what, increases inflammation and decreases immunocompetence. So, so the surefire way then to compromise your immune system is to stay inside, stay on your computer uh, late at night, not get enough sleep, and you are setting yourself up for really a a uh, a, non-functioning, not not an adequate, not an optimal functioning immune system, which right now we need more than ever. And again, our lifestyle choices are paramount in terms of whether our immune systems are going to respond appropriately when our immune systems are challenged or not. It's not that we're taking a drug or not taking a drug or this or that. It's it's mostly what we choose to do in terms of day-to-day choices.
0: Yes, and let's talk about some of those day-to-day choices. Uh, I want to pick up on, um, so you're a neurologist, I want to pick up on some potential foods which we could take in regards to the move in towards what we want. So, I know in the book you talk about foods like avocado or you talk about foods like salmon. What would be perhaps maybe one to three really net positive foods which we could eat for for brainwash
1: uh it, it's a tough call i mean i uh, <laughs> yeah. I love to eat uh, and I'm been doing a lot of cooking and growing a lot of food uh, but uh, I think uh, I would have to put. On the list of top five certainly would be olive oil, uh, profoundly effective food in terms of helping with inflammation, giving your body good fat. Now, there was a time a few years ago where you were not allowed to say the word good and the word fat in the same sentence. Yeah. you know, Think of how far we've come. I'd say the next would be any of the foods that are high in what is called prebiotic fiber, fiber to nurture our gut bacteria like garlic onions, leeks, jicama, uh, which is Mexican yam, Jerusalem artichoke. Uh, I think the cruciferous vegetables are really, really helpful, not only because of their fiber, but because of their ability to activate uh, uh, a certain pathway called the NRF2 pathway that helps us with inflammation, helps us reduce uh, the damaging effects of chemicals called free radicals, helps us with detoxification, uh, I am not a, a vegetarian, though we do opt for one meal a day to be plant-based now, and we can talk about that in a moment. Uh, so I do have uh, animal protein in the form of eggs or salmon. Uh, rarely, I'll have some uh, grass-fed beef uh, and some free-range chicken. Uh, so I think these are, you know, kind of the core. I think if you're going to look at your dinner plate, what you should look for would be mostly colorful above ground vegetables. Now, if you want to add to that uh, animal protein, that is of course your choice uh, and lots and lots of olive oil. Olive oil is on almost everything I eat. I can't think of something I would not put olive oil on, frankly, good, high quality extra virgin organic uh, olive oil. I, I eat probably more than a liter a week. That doesn't, you know, it may seem like a lot, but as a matter of fact, in what's called the PREDIMED study, uh, that level of olive oil consumption was linked to a significant reduction in risk for coronary artery disease, uh, Alzheimer's disease, and in women, breast cancer. So um, olive oil, bring it on. Avocados, I think, are a wonderful fruit. Um, And, you know, I live in Florida, so we have access to some great avocados. So I I think you were looking for one or two, and uh, I took the uh, artistic license here. What can I say?
0: (laughs) Even better, even better. So when I read Brain Maker, I thought that was fantastic. Brainwash. I absolutely loved this book. And in fact, we're actually going to do a giveaway. We're going to give away five copies of your book on our Instagram. Um, Nice. So I wonder... what would be one take if you could give? I know I'll see. I love these these short questions. What would be one take home message you want people to take away from this book, David?
1: Uh, I would say that your decision making <clears throat> is the most important attribute that you have. That plays into everything that's going to happen to you moving forward. Your health. Uh, your financial stability. Everything depends on making good decisions. And uh, certainly in these times when we are challenged uh, aggressively, we've got to make really good decisions if, we're, if we want to remain healthy, uh, both physically and mentally. So I think the, the main message would be uh, uh, empowerment, that yes, you can do it, and no, it's not your fault.
0: I love it, I love it I can't let you go without asking I can see all these wonderful books behind you could you name some books which have impacted your life, David?
1: Uh, sure um, I would say The Disease Delusion by Dr. Jeffrey Bland The End of Alzheimer's by Dr. Dale Bredesen um, I'm a big fan of uh, Barbara Kingsolver who writes fiction uh, I just finished reading a uh, the Song uh, of the, uh, the Crawdads, and uh, also fiction, I thought it was excellent. Um, I read a lot of uh, science-based uh, books, obviously academic books, and a lot of, uh, I don't say science fiction, but fictional, uh, fictional books that have a scientific kind of a bent to them. And you know, I get, uh, I I'm, since I do a podcast, I get probably five or six books a week. And uh, so I have the opportunity to read so many, um, so many great books. I think Michael Bruce uh, wrote a book called The Power of Wind, When, When, uh, When. Food Fix by Dr. Mark Hyman, uh, excellent book. Um, Aaron uh, Aaron uh, Alexander wrote a book called The Align Method. I don't know if you know Aaron, but it's I'm a terrific, sure. yeah, yeah, a terrific, a terrific book. So. I have this opportunity, like like you do, to to read a lot of books before they're even published, when there's still mistakes in them. So um, these have all been really influential. I think uh, Siddhartha was a um, a very uh, impactful book for me, moving through my life. I've read it at multiple stages of my life, and it's become you know becomes uh, more meaningful every time. Uh, right now, I'm reading a biography of a, a singer, Joni Mitchell, uh, enjoying the heck out of that. And uh, and also uh, a book about historical, from Time Magazine, a book about just the history of mankind and some of the great achievements.
0: Thank you for that answer. Where can our audience connect with you going forward, David?
1: DrPerlmutter.com, D-R-Perlmutter, dot com. Uh, that's my website that kind of is the portal to everything that I do Facebook is David Perlmutter MD uh, Instagram I think is uh, David Perlmutter David Film, you? something like that you'd probably know better than I do
0: David, that brain
1: brainwash. that uh, yeah
0: and then everything will be linked below David this go. was such a pleasure having you on my the show pleasure. can't thank you enough for coming on
1: thank you for having me
0: Well, guys, that wraps up what was a truly fantastic episode with David. Stay grateful, walk in nature, be empathetic, get restorative sleep, embrace real connection over digital, meditate, avoid cheap dopamine, and be intentional with your time. I sincerely hope that this episode was of value to you. And I will see you next week. Have a great one, guys.